Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Today's episode is now the second part of a three-part, occasionally personal journey through one of the better summers for films during the 1980s, the summer of 1976. We previously covered the films of May and June in part one of this series. Today, we'll concentrate on the films of July. Now, I know at the end of the last show, I said I'd be covering August films as well, but as usual, I didn't properly plan things out before I moved forward. I didn't realize I'd have so much to say about the movies of July and August. Usually, I would write a script of about 25 pages for a one-hour show, but I hadn't even finished with the films of August 8th, and the page counter at the bottom of my word processing program was telling me I was already at 34 pages, and I still had one movie to finish for that week and another three weeks to go. This episode would have ran more than two hours if I tried to fit every movie from July and August into this show, and even I don't want to listen to myself for two hours straight. I'd never do that to you. And now I know why Scott and Drew and Bobby from the exceptional and sorely missed 80s all over only ever did one month at a time. There's just too many damn movies to talk about. It's a benchmark I'm aiming for with this podcast. But before we get to those July movies, I want to acknowledge, since the recording of our last show, the passing of Kelly Preston, which was announced on Monday, July 13th. Miss Preston was one of the most beautiful young stars to come out of the 1980s, from her start as a commercial spokesperson for Pepsi Free in 1982, and her first movies, the otherwise atrocious Charles Band 3D sci-fi adventure flick Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin, and John Carpenter's incredible adaptation of Stephen King's Christine. For a while, it seemed she'd become a staple of mid-80s teen sex comedies, but she really only starred in two of them, Mischief and Secret Admirer, and they had come out within four months of each other. Preston would start getting media roles, such as a small but important role in John Frankenheimer's 1986 crime thriller 52 Pickup, and the lead female role in the Arnold Schwarzenegger Danny DeVito comedy Twins, but her output and quality of work would subside after her marriage to John Travolta after meeting him on the set of their 1989 spy comedy The Experts. Now, I'm not saying becoming Mrs. Travolta sank her career, because it didn't, at least not at first. Two of her best roles would come to theaters on the same day, December 13, 1996. The first was Citizen Ruth, Alexander Payne's debut feature film, which featured Preston and Susie Kurtz as a lesbian couple who try to steer Laura Dern's title character in one direction of the abortion debate. The other is her single best film and best performance in Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire, where she plays Jerry's fiancée, who leaves him after his epiphany. She's only on screen for a few moments, but she is electric in those scenes. What did I do to you? It's all about you, isn't it? Soothe me, save me, love me. I have to finish my job. Everything is fucking run with us, everything. Jerry, you and I are salespeople. We sell. It's not love me. It's not trust my handshake. It's make the sale, get it signed. There shouldn't be confusion about that. Okay, just jump right into my nightmare. The water is warm. Oh, so honesty is outlawed here. I can't be honest. Tell you what, I would prefer loyalty. What was our deal when we first got together? Brutal truth, remember? I think you added the brutal. Jerry, there is a sensitivity thing that some people have. I don't have it. 
I don't cry at movies. I don't gush over babies. I don't start celebrating Christmas five months early. And I don't tell a man who just screwed up both our lives. Oh, poor baby. That's me, for better or worse. After her appearance in her husband's ill-advised and very poorly received 2000 Battlefield Earth adaptation, her career seemed to take a backseat to her family. There would be the occasional role here and there, including three more films with her husband, including her final film appearance as Mrs. John Gotti in Kevin Connolly's crime drama. Kelly Preston will be missed. Okay, let's get back to the summer of 1986. Since July 4th this year landed on a Friday, the holiday weekend at the box office would start with five new releases on Wednesday the 2nd. Ed Zwick's About Last Night from TriStar Pictures was a rather poorly constructed adaptation of David Mamet's 1974 play Sexual Perversity in Chicago. The play would make Mamet famous, and its director, Stuart Gordon, would soon become the horror movie auteur we all know and love. But this movie was wrong pretty much on every level. Zwick may be a very good director of dramas and historical epics, but his track record on comedies is, to put it kindly, not the best. The adaptation of the Mamet play was done by former Saturday Night Live cast member Tim Kazarinski and his writing partner, Denise DeClue. Kazarinski was rather good on Saturday Night Live, but with writing credits that also include the lousy Molly Ringwald teen pregnancy dramedy For Keeps and the direct-to-video Sinbad western The Cherokee Kid, he might not have been the best choice to rewrite David Mamet. And then there's the choice of the leads, Rob Lowe and Demi Moore. The one-act play presented intimate relationships as minefields of buried fears and misunderstandings, while the movie was mostly about these two pretty people fucking, while their not-as-attractive friends Jim Belushi and Elizabeth Perkins bicker in the background. On that opening weekend, it would come in 10th place with $3.15 million from 642 theaters. But the second weekend, it would add 38 screens and its gross would grow to $3.5 million. The third week, it would add another 171 screens and come in 6th place with another $3.4 million. After that, it would fall between 5 and 25% each week for a couple of months finally finishing in the late fall with more than $38.7 million in the bank. John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China from 20th Century Fox was one of those woulda, coulda, shoulda movies. It was the fourth teaming of director Carpenter and actor Kurt Russell, and this mix of comedy, fantasy, and martial arts was originally written by future Total Recall writer Gary Goldman, his first produced feature, but it would be heavily rewritten by Buckaroo Banzai producer-director W.D. Richter to change the timeline from the turn-of-the-century San Francisco to the modern day and remove most of the Wild West themes to incorporate more of the martial arts motifs that really interested Carpenter. But then, Carpenter and company, deep into pre-production and almost ready to roll cameras, discovered Paramount was about to start production on a similarly-themed movie, The Golden Child, starring one of the biggest box office stars in the world, Eddie Murphy. Getting the film into production was rushed, 
so the film could come out several months ahead of the Golden Child's planned Christmas 1986 release, which would end up not being the best possible choice. The story as it was, where Russell's Jack Burton helps his friend rescue his fiancée from an ancient sorcerer who lives under the streets of San Francisco, would never quite come together, and the studio would lose faith in the project before it was released. Big Trouble in Little China would open in 12th place that weekend, with $2.7 million from 1,053 screens, the worst of the five new wide openers, and it would continue to fall from there, ending its abbreviated theatrical run with $11.1 million. Carpenter would be so disappointed with his experience at the studio that he would swear off all studio films for the next several years, and the studio was already looking forward to their next release two weeks later. Disney would release their 26th animated feature film, The Great Mouse Detective, this weekend. After the relative disappointment of number 25, 1985's The Black Cauldron, Disney was in need of a new hit. Based on the children's book series Basil of Baker Street, The Great Mouse Detective tells the story of, well, a mouse detective in 1897 London who was not unlike another very well-known London-based detective of the same era. Series author Eve Titus would name her title character after British actor Basil Rathbone, who famously played that detective in a series of 14 movies produced between 1939 and 1946, and who would play the same character in this movie one more time, even though he had passed away 19 years earlier. His voice would be taken from a 1966 recorded reading of The Red-Headed League. The film would also feature the voice of Vincent Price in his one and only Disney animated feature. The $14 million film would open in ninth place with $3.2 million from 1,138 screens and would play well throughout the summer, finishing its run with $25.3 million in ticket sales. The film would also get one theatrical re-release in February 1992, where it would gross another $13.3 million. In 1982, Universal Pictures decided, hey, you know it would be great? A sequel to Psycho! But it wasn't great. Sure, it had some cute homages to Hitchcock, but it wasn't Hitch. Hitch didn't need gore to get it to the terror of the story. Psycho 2 was not a very good film, but it performed well enough in the summer of 1983, grossing $34.7 million on a $5 million budget, where you knew that someday another one would be coming down the pike. And sure enough, three years later, Psycho 3 arrived. It would get a higher budget than Psycho 2, $8.4 million, and it would be directed by Norman Bates himself, Anthony Perkins, the first time he'd be a director on anything. Perkins, along with Hilton Green, who had been Hitch's assistant director on the first film and was acting as a producer on this one, tried to steer the movie away from straight horror and go for the comedic horror tone that was more popular at the time. But when the Universal Brass saw Perkins' first cut, they didn't think audiences would appreciate the tonal shift in the series, and they demanded he add more blood. But that didn't matter either. The film was still not very good, although it did have a couple good moments of scares. 
Of the five new movies that opened this weekend, Psycho 3 had the highest opening, $3.23 million, from 1,408 screens. But that was only good enough for eighth place overall. After two weeks, the film had lost half its theaters and two-thirds of its audience, and when it was all done, it would finish with $14.48 million worth of ticket sales. The fifth wide release for July 2nd was Under the Cherry Moon from Warner Brother Pictures. This would be Prince's film follow-up to his massively successful Purple Rain. Mary Lambert, the vanguard music video director behind the videos for Madonna's Like a Virgin and Borderline, the Eurythmics' Would I Lie to You, and Janet Jackson's Nasty and Control, was making her feature film debut in this would-be musical that followed Gigolo's Prince and Jerome Benton as they swindled wealthy French women up and down the French Riviera. Except Lambert and Prince would clash repeatedly about the direction of the production, and Lambert would quit after 16 days of filming. Thus, Under the Cherry Moon would become Prince's feature directing debut. And despite a charming Kristen Scott Thomas in her motion picture debut, and some inspired black and white cinematography by the great Michael Ballhaus, the $9 million movie is about as good as you'd expect from a neophyte filmmaker who is also the star of the film. And despite featuring one of the hottest songs of the year on its platinum-selling soundtrack, the movie would not connect with regular moviegoers or with Prince fans. It earned $3.15 million from 976 theaters, good enough for 11th place this weekend. It would lose half that audience in its second weekend and slowly limp its way to a $10 million final gross. One other movie would open this week, Gary Kent's Rainy Day Friends from Power Dance Corporation, featuring Isai Morales as a tough L.A. street kid who has to adjust to a new way of life when he is diagnosed with stomach tumors. It didn't make enough of an impression to have its grosses reported, and it would disappear from theaters after just a couple weeks. You might know it under its video title, L.A. Bad. Only one movie would open on Wednesday, July 9th, the Scottish comedy The Girl in the Picture, directed by Carrie Parker from Samuel Goldwyn Films. John Gordon Sinclair, the brilliant young star of Bill Forsyth's Gregory's Girl and Local Hero, plays a photographer in Glasgow, Scotland, who wants to get back together with his ex-girlfriend, who wants nothing to do with him, while he assists his smitten assistant, in trying to track down a mysterious young lady in one of his photographs. The film would gross a little over $200,000 in American theaters. July 11th would be a lousy weekend for new movies. Warner Brothers would release its second stinker in two weeks, Club Paradise. It would be Harold Ramis's third film as a director, and it's easily his worst film, which is even more depressing when you hear the cast he assembled. Adolf Caesar, Joanna Cassidy, Jimmy Cliff, Brian Doyle Murray, Andrea Martin, Eugene Levy, Rick Moranis, Peter O'Toole, and Robin Williams. And the story and screenplay was written by, in part, 
Harry Shearer, Brian Doyle Murray, and Harold Ramis. How the fuck can this movie be so bad? Williams plays a retired Chicago firefighter who teams up with Cliff's reggae singer to turn a seedy Caribbean resort into a hotspot for wealthy American tourists. Seriously, how the fuck can this movie be so bad? It is so bad. There's maybe three laughs in the entire movie. And the best part of it is its poster. A funny picture where all the major actors in the movie are waist-deep in a beautiful blue ocean, the water behind them stretching out all the way to the horizon. The $15 million film would gross $4.15 million from 1,172 theaters and finish with $12.3 million after nine weeks. The second film would be Jim Coff's Miracles, which we didn't really cover in any depth in our third episode of our recent Orion Picture series. Since I wrote and recorded that episode back on May 4th, it finally got its first posted review on Rotten Tomatoes. It might also be even less funny than Club Paradise. Terry Garr and Tom Conti star as a recently divorced couple who are thrown back together through a series of flukes who find themselves going from New York City to Mexico for reasons that are just too stupid to get into any detail over. Paul Rodriguez plays the hapless robber who brings them together, and Christopher Lloyd as a pilot that makes things worse. Avoid this movie at all costs. No new movies open on Wednesday, July 15th. However, this would be the day Cuba and his teddy bear starring Robert De Niro, Ralph Macchio, and Burt Young, would make its first appearance on Broadway after playing the previous month to sold-out houses at Joseph Papp's Public Theater. The Public Theater is also where Hamilton would have its first shows before moving to Broadway. But Friday, July 17th? Oh, I have been waiting for this. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Yeah. 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 Nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving in. It ain't us. Get them out of there.
aliens. This time, it's war. Where do you even start with one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever made? And one of the best war movies ever made? And one of the best monster movies ever made? And one of the best action movies ever made? And one of the best sequels ever made? This is the formula for which all future sequels should have cribbed from. Don't just remake the same movie again, but find a way to expand it, modify it, make it fresh again for audiences. Cameron got the job of writing the screenplay for Aliens after Gordon Carroll, David Geiler, and Walter Hill, the principals of Brandywine Productions, who would produce every Alien movie, read the script for The Terminator a year before the movie that would put the filmmaker on the map would even go into production. Cameron would turn in a 45-page treatment in just four days. And when the Terminator would be delayed due to Schwarzenegger's extended shooting on Conan the Destroyer, Cameron would have time to finish that screenplay. Fox president Larry Gordon was so impressed that he promised Cameron if the Terminator was a success at the box office, he would be able to direct Aliens. Within a year, Cameron would be on set in London. Production on Aliens would not be easy. Many of the crew had also worked on Alien and felt Cameron was too young and unproven to follow up Ridley Scott. Cameron would clash with cinematographer Dick Bush on how the film was being lit. Their relationship had already not started on the right foot when Bush declared at the start of the shoot that they would not be able to complete the movie on schedule. Things came to a blow after Bush insisted on shooting the alien nest set where the space marines first meet the xenomorphs rather brightly when Cameron wanted it dark, relying solely on the lights from the marines' armor. Cameron would get the studio to fire Bush, and Bush's grips and gaffers would walk off the job. Cameron's wife and producer, Gail Ann Hurd, would get the crew back on set, and production would resume a few days later, with Adrian Biddle, who was a focus puller on the original Alien and was personally recommended to Cameron by Ridley Scott as the new DP. Now, Bush was almost right about his original assessment. Six weeks before the film was released, the actors hadn't finished doing their dubbing, and James Horner's score still hadn't been written, because Cameron hadn't allowed Horner to see the final product because Cameron was still putting it together. Horner would finally get to see the movie, and he would write and record the score in a matter of days. But if you watch that first teaser trailer for Aliens, you'll notice all the music and sound cues come from the first movie. The film would just barely get completed in time to make its release date, to the point that there was no time for Fox to do any audience test screenings. But a classic was astonishingly born anyway. The reviews were amongst the best of any film released that year, and it would receive an A rating from CinemaScore polled audiences. The film would open as the number one movie in the nation, grossing a bit over $10 million from 1,437 screens in its first three days, back when a $10 million opening really meant something. And it would remain the number one movie in America for four weeks. It wouldn't drop out of the top ten for more than three months, and it would play through early January 1987, 
finally ending with $85.16 million in box office grosses. The movie would receive seven Academy Award nominations a few weeks after that, including Sigourney Weaver's first acting nomination. It would be one of the first times any performer would get a nomination for acting in a sci-fi or horror film, but she would lose to Marley Matlin in Children of a Lesser God. The film would win two statues for Best Sound Effects Editing and Best Visual Effects, and it would win or be nominated for dozens of more awards. Even today, the film is generally considered to be either the best or just barely the second best film in the series. And as good as the theatrical release was, Cameron's special edition with 17 minutes of footage that was cut in those final weeks before release and put out on home video in 1991 is the far superior movie. Two other wide releases were, came out on the 17th, but neither of them would make much of an impact. Roman Polanski's Pirates was a fiasco on every level, featuring Walter Matthau as a once infamous pirate who spends two hours getting into one bad situation after another, literally ending the movie exactly the way he started the movie, with nothing gained and nothing lost. Pirates was originally supposed to be produced in the late 1970s by Paramount Pictures with a $15 million budget. They would pull out of the film... An independent company, Filmways, would jump aboard with the film at $24 million. But then they would pull out, and a Tunisian producer named Tarak Ben Amar would jump aboard with a movie now at $28 million. Universal would sign on to provide two-thirds of the budget, but then they'd abandon ship after Amar had already spent $8 million in pre-production building sound stages and a replica of a Spanish galleon. Amar would end up raising the now $40 million budget through a series of bank loans. MGM would agree to distribute the movie while it was in production, and then they would walk away from that agreement before production was even completed. And then finally, Canon Films agreed to release the movie after it was completed and for a fraction of what it cost to make. Even hedging those modest bets, Cannon would still end up taking a loss of $2 million on the film. Opening in 1,108 theaters, Pirates would open in 14th place with barely $1 million in ticket sales. And then the film would lose 86.5% of its opening weekend numbers in its second week, and would end with a final gross of only $1.64 million. Richard Wank's Vamp from New World Pictures would perform a little bit better. It certainly has a more fun premise. The inimitable Grace Jones stars as a stripper hired by Chris Makepeace, Robert Russler, and Getty Wantanabe in an attempt to impress their way into a fraternity house. But it turns out she's a vampire. It's silly and fun. It's not a great movie, but it's better than it deserves to be. Miss Jones is always a blast to watch, and costume designer Betty Madden captured the essence of her persona better than anyone else Miss Jones would work with on screen. The film also stars Dee Dee Pfeiffer and the great Billy Drago. Vamp would open in 11th place with $2.91 million from 1,104 screens. It would quickly drop out of the first-run theaters, but it would continue to play at drive-ins and dollar houses throughout the rest of the summer and into early fall, 
finishing with nearly $5 million in the till. Also opening on July 18th was Nadia Toss's Australian comedy Malcolm from Vestron Pictures, featuring Colin Friels as an autistic man who was conned into helping a bank robber pull off a heist via remote control. Then there was Robert M. Young's dramedy Saving Grace from Columbia Pictures, which found Tom Conti as a new pope who visits a poor village after being locked out of the Vatican while in civilian clothes, and the Isabel Huppert drama Sincerely Charlotte, co-written and directed by the actress's older sister Caroline from New Line Cinema. One film would open on Wednesday, July 23rd, Love Songs, a French romantic drama featuring Catherine Deneuve and Christopher Lambert, directed by Elie Chiraki from Spectrafilm. Deneuve is a newly single mother of two tweens who gets a job as a rock promoter to support her family, and Lambert is one of the acts who becomes obsessed over her. And seriously, who can blame him? It's Catherine Deneuve. July 23rd will also see a week-long mini-film festival at the Film Forum in New York City. Seven movies produced by Britain's Channel 4 that had yet to be released in America to that point. Channel 4 had seen some success with productions like My Beautiful Laundrette in theaters outside the United Kingdom, but for whatever reason, these films had never gotten picked up for release. In alphabetical order, they were Heaven, Earth, Man, or Heaven, Man, Earth, directed by Lorenz C. Potma. It's supposed to be a documentary about the triad gangs of Hong Kong, but it later came out that much of the footage was manufactured. Lamb, directed by Colin Gregg, starring Liam Neeson as a teacher at an Irish Roman Catholic-run school for troubled boys, and how he tries to connect with the school's most unruly pupil, a 10-year-old epileptic who curses at and picks fights with everyone, smokes cigarettes, and wets his bed. Meanwhile, directed by Mike Lee, starring Alfred Molina, Gary Oldman, and Tim Roth, about a family living in the East London projects and barely existing on unemployment checks. Sacred Hearts, directed by Barbara Rennie, starring Anna Massey and Fiona Shaw, about life inside a repressive convent school during World War II. She'll Be Wearing Pink Pajamas, directed by John Goldschmidt, starring Julie Walters as one of eight women who attend one of Britain's toughest survival schools to challenge themselves and conquer their fears. Walter and June, directed by Stephen Frears, starring Ian McKellen as a moderately intellectually disabled man who, after the death of his parents, is put into an institution where he is subject to the casual cruelties of the normal world. Sarah Miles stars as June, and the supporting cast includes future Oscar winner Jim Broadbent and John Gordon Sinclair. And Zima, directed by Ken McMullen, a fictional drama based on the life of the daughter of Leon Trotsky, who was exiled to Berlin in the early 30s during the Stalin purges. She became obsessed with Antigone, the protagonist of a famous Greek tragedy, and lost her mind. Ian McKellen again stars alongside frequent Jean-Pierre Junot collaborator Dominique Pignon and the great character actor William Hootkins. July 25th would be one of the biggest weeks for new releases, at least by the quantity of new titles being released in the theaters. We've previously covered Robert Dornhelm's Echo Park 
and Gene Wilder's haunted honeymoon in our third chapter of Orion Pictures in the 1980s. Mike Nichols's adaptation of Nora Ephron's 1983 autobiographical novel Heartburn would mostly benefit the career of its writer. Meryl Streep plays a thinly-veiled version of Ephron, Jack Nicholson a thinly-veiled version of her second husband, Carl Bernstein, and this sometimes funny, sometimes painful recap of their not-very-good marriage is full of what today we would call first-world problems. Now, no doubt, Bernstein is a total shithead, and he deserves everything that happens to him in the film. The target audience for this was going to be very narrow anyway. White women of a certain age. And based on the attendance at my own theater when we played it, that's exactly who came. Heartburn would open to second place that weekend, earning $5.78 million from 843 theaters. But it would have the best per-screen average of the major releases in theaters that week, including the second week of Aliens. The film would drop out of the top 10 by week 3, and out of the top 20 by week 6. It would hang on around some dollar houses for a few more months, finishing its run with $25.3 million, a decent haul for 1986 movies, but a good third less than 1983 Silkwood, which also starred Streep, was co-written by Efron, and was directed by Mike Nichols. When Carrie was released in the theaters in 1976, it would be the first introduction of many to the mind of Stephen King. His novels and short stories would intrigue and excite millions, including those who would never otherwise even consider reading horror fiction. Many of his stories would be sold to adaptations to the big screen or the small screen, and several of those films would become classics, including The Shining, The Dead Zone, and Christine. And then there'd be Creepshow, written by King and directed by George A. Romero, with three new stories written by King alongside two adaptations of his short stories, which is still one of the best horror films ever made. But by 1986, more of those story-to-screen adaptations would fall into the not-quite-classics category. Cat's Eye, Children of the Corn, Cujo, Firestarter, and Silver Bullet would all hurt the King brand at the movies, so why not let King make his own movie adaptation of one of his stories? It could have been great, but King decided to make one of his lesser short stories, Trucks, into a movie, and decided to spend the entire production process, in his own words, coked out of his mind and really not knowing what he was doing. It's a very fair assessment because the film is a real piece of shit. There are a couple of moments of inspired lunacy, and the film, thanks to King's love of ACDC, did bring us one of their all-time greatest bangers. But it's definitely one of those movies for which one time is enough. A group of people, including Emilio Estevez and Pat Hingle, find themselves trapped in a roadside truck stop by a bunch of machines brought to life as the Earth passes through the tail of a comet. Bad things happen to good and bad people, there's some really good and some really lousy makeup effects, and after an hour and 38 minutes, you'll be glad it's over. Maximum Overdrive would end up in seventh place with $3.2 million from 1,198 theaters. The film would play for another 21 weeks, mostly as the second title of a drive-in double feature, and it would finish with just over $7 million in the bank. 
It would be the first movie produced by Dino De Laurentiis' eponymously named new studio, although it would be the third to actually be released into theaters. We'll talk about the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group and its 20 movies released in an 18-month period on a future show. And that show is gonna be fun. Richard Tuggle's Out of Bounds from Columbia Pictures would be the first time where all the weight of a movie would rest solely on Anthony Michael Hall's shoulders, and would be the first time since 1982 where he'd be performing in a movie not written and or directed by John Hughes. Not that Hughes didn't want to stop working with Hall. Hughes specifically wrote both Ducky in Pretty in Pink and Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off for Hall, who turned both roles down for fear of being typecast. And he was certain to make sure everybody on set knew it. Tuggle would try to get Hall to play the role of Daryl as written, an innocent farm boy from Iowa who becomes targeted by the police and a drug kingpin when his luggage at the airport is accidentally taken by one of the kingpin's mules, leaving Daryl with an identical suitcase filled with heroin. Hall, who was also under consideration at the time for the lead role in Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, wanted to be little Clint Eastwood, which would cause many clashes during filming. Hall would also keep himself isolated from the rest of the cast, he would rarely speak to the crew, and he would treat set visitors, including then-California Governor Dor George Duke Majin, like absolute crap. The best part of the movie, and that's really not saying much, is its wild and eclectic soundtrack, with music from Belinda Carlisle, Stuart Copeland and Adam Ant, The Cult, The Lords of the New Church, Night Ranger, and Susie and the Banshees, who appear in the movie as themselves during a club show. Opening on 1,207 screens, Out of Bounds was out of luck, pulling in just $2.14 million its opening weekend, the worst of the new studio-wide releases, and almost $300,000 less than Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which was now in its seventh week of release. Out of Bounds would play out after five months of mostly dollar house playdates, and a few hundred dollars shy of $5.1 million in total ticket sales. The other films opening this weekend were Frank Harris's The Patriot from Crown International Pictures, featuring Greg Henry in a rare starring role as a former Navy SEAL who's brought back into the service to help retrieve a cache of stolen nuclear weapons, also featuring Jeff Conaway, Michael J. Pollard, and Leslie Nielsen, and Robotech the Movie, from Canon Films. Now, I don't pretend to know anything about Robotech, but it sounds like nobody involved in the distribution or making of the movie knew what they were doing. The film is, by all accounts, a poorly edited mashup of an animated series called Super Dimension Cavalry Southern Cross and a direct-to-video anime movie called Megazone 23 Part 1. And Canon Films decided to release the movie not in New York or Los Angeles at first, but into 35 theaters in and around Dallas. Why? Because apparently Dallas represented middle America, and Cannon wanted to see if it would appeal to non-anime fans. Nope! The film would play for a couple weeks, but there are no reported grosses for the film. It would only play once more, at an international animation celebration in Los Angeles in early 1987, 
And to this date, it has only been released on VHS in Japanese with either Dutch or Spanish subtitles, depending on the territory. The original negatives for the film was destroyed during a flood in Tokyo in the early 1990s, so it's unlikely the film will ever get released for streaming or on any other physical media. Wednesday, July 30th, would have two wide new openers. The first would be The Flight of the Navigator from Walt Disney Pictures, about a 12-year-old boy who was returned to Earth after being abducted by aliens eight years earlier, unchanged by his travels. Joey Kramer is the young boy, and Paul Rubens would provide the voice of the robotic commander of the spaceship that stole the boy away all those years ago. Veronica Cartwright and Cliff DeYoung are his parents, and Sarah Jessica Parker is a NASA intern who befriends the boy and his family. It's not a very good film, and director Randall Kleiser, still best known today as the director of Grease, does the best he can with his $7 million budget, limited for a Hollywood feature at the time, and one that included the very first use of digital morphing in a motion picture. Audiences seemed to enjoy it, even if some critics didn't. Opening in 952 theaters, the film would gross $3.12 million in its first five days, on its way to an $18.56 million final gross. The second was Nothing in Common from TriStar Pictures. Gary Marshall directs Jackie Gleason and Tom Hanks as a father and son whose already strained relationship is pushed to the breaking point after the son needs to take care of both his parents when they divorce after 36 years of marriage. Eva Marie Saint, appearing in her first movie in 14 years, and who would not appear in another movie after this for another 14 years, plays the mother, and she is still as lovely and as wonderful as she would be in On the Waterfront or North by Northwest. The supporting cast also includes Bess Armstrong, Barry Corbin, Celia Ward, and, because it's a Gary Marshall film, Hector Elizondo. But the movie belongs to its two above-the-title stars. Gleason had already been diagnosed with terminal cancer before production began, and he comes out like a prizefighter who knows this is his last fight and has bet all of his money on himself. It would end up being his last movie, and it's a fitting ending to one of the greatest careers in Hollywood. It's also the movie where Hanks really starts to pivot away from the silly comedies where he made his name, and going toe-to-toe with two veterans like Gleason and Saint clearly make him raise his own game. He still has some of those grating youthful acting tics he'd soon lose. But if you want to see where Tom Hanks started to become the Tom Hanks we know and love, this is a great place to start. And it's also got a great title theme song by the Thompson Twins. The $12 million film would be a modest success. Its five-day haul from 618 screens would be $3.28 million and would keep adding theaters every week for more than a month, finally hitting its widest release pattern of 980 screens in its sixth week. It would continue in theaters until the end of the year, finishing with $32.3 million. Another favored actress from Cinema's Golden Past would be making her first film appearance in 15 years this day when the Deborah Kerr movie The Awesome Garden would open at the Film Forum in New York City's Lower East Side. Mary McMurray's drama from The Moving Picture Company features Kerr as a recently widowed woman who finds out she might need to sell her beloved house and its immaculately kept garden 
At the same time, the garden has been selected for consideration as a great British garden. And then there was Doris Dory's Men from New Yorker Films, which opened at the Lincoln Plaza Cinema on the Upper West Side. This West German film, which would be the country's official entry into this year's Academy Award race for Best Foreign Language Film, was a Lubetschian comedy about a husband, a successful partner at a packaging design firm, who's been cheating on his wife, who moves out of their house when he discovers she's been cheating on him. The husband finds her wife's lover, a poor artist, and becomes that man's roommate, with the artist unaware that his new roomie is his lover's soon-to-be ex-husband. It's actually a really good movie, and it has one of the more inventive end credit sequences you'll ever see in a movie. While the Academy did not nominate men for Best Foreign Language Film, it performed well enough in America where Dory was given the opportunity to, to direct whatever she wanted thanks to David Putnam at Columbia Pictures. The movie she made, Me and Him, features Griffin Dunn as a man whose penis starts talking to him and getting him into all kinds of trouble. And that will be one of the movies that we cover in a future episode about David Putnam's short tenure at Columbia Pictures. And as much as I can't think of a better way to end an episode than talking penises, there's one more movie that needs to be mentioned that, according to contemporary sources, was released somewhere in America in July 1986, but I am unable to find a more specific release date or where this film might have been released. It's called Rollerblade, directed by Donald G. Jackson from New World Pictures. It's a sci-fi action comedy that was made on a budget of around $70,000. And it tells the story of a group of rebels in a futuristic society who are fighting against a group of rollerblading nuns called, and I shit you not, the Bod Sisters. Most modern reviews of the film put it amongst the very worst films ever made. Now, I have no idea how well this might have performed in theaters, but it had to have made some kind of impact, or was at least popular on home video and cable, because Jackson was able to make not one, not two, and not three, but four different sequels. 1989's Rollerblade Warriors Taken by Force, 1991's The Rollerblade 7, 1992's The Legend of the Rollerblade 7, and 1993's The Return of the Rollerblade 7. And what's more amazing is that Jackson was able to secure a budget nearly seven times larger for Rollerblade Warriors than he was for Rollerblade, and he was able to secure C-level names like Kathleen Kinmont from Halloween 4 and Bride of Reanimator, and Rory Calhoun to star. And that he was able to secure an actual Oscar nominee, Karen Black, for the final three. And that wraps up the movies of July 1987. On the next episode of the Film Jerk Podcast, Jason Lives. The Marvel movie universe is hatched. Art Garfunkel is good to go. Blake Edwards gets himself into a fine mess. John Cusack and Demi Moore have one crazy summer. Won't you stand by me? John Candy is armed and dangerous. The beginning and ending of Brundlefly. Look out, boy. William L. Peterson is a manhunter. Farrah Fawcett in her single best movie performance. 
Toby Hooper brings Dennis Hopper into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre cinematic universe. Madonna and Sean Penn get a Shanghai surprise. And the single best thing to happen to movies in 1986, the debut of one Shelton J. Lee. I hope you'll join us. Don't forget, you still have until the end of the month to get yourself entered into our first contest. Leave a rating and a review of the show on Apple Podcasts, and then send me an email to podcast at filmjerk.com with a screenshot of your review. And on August 1st, 2020, I will randomly pick someone to win a $10 iTunes gift card. If you've already left a review, thank you for doing so. Make sure to follow those uh, rules so you can enter as well. And since there's only three reviews of the Film Jerk podcast on Apple Podcasts at the moment, you have a really damn good chance of winning. So don't delay. Review today. The Film Jerk podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. So please help get the word out. Please post about the podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at filmjerk. The Film Jerk Podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.